five, as it is just my complete joy to launch into this series on mountains. Uh, Pastor Mike uh, asked me to share something from uh, the Bible that takes place on a mountain, and so I want to share with you actually Jesus' last teaching prior to the cross that he gives on Mount Olivet. And uh, thanks, Fred, for telling me that my teaching feels like hugging you and giving you a punch in the gut. I think today's going to be a lot more punch in the gut than uh, um, anything else. So let's go ahead and laugh and enjoy right now. Thank you for wishing me happy birthday. You can actually zell me your uh, appreciation if you really want to. Um, and then, of course, today is Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, any 49ers fans in the house? Anybody? You shouldn't be because Kyle Shanahan was our offensive coordinator with the Falcons when he blew it in the Super Bowl. <laughs> All right, so I ain't got no love for that brother, none whatsoever. Um, so anyways, it's uh, always a joy. To, it was kind of a surprise to see my folks when I walked in because I'm going to see Dad tomorrow. Uh, we, we're going to celebrate our birthday tomorrow. He's coming up to Raleigh because he got me tickets to a Duke Blue Devils game. I'm not a Blue Devils fan. Neither is God. God doesn't like devils. Uh, we... <laughs> We got that squared away, so, uh, but it'll be good to hang out with him and mom. I'm like, how in the world did y'all know I was here? And they're like, we got social media. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right, you do, um, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, and then it's also good for me to see a good buddy of mine, Pastor Chris, and his wife. Uh, Pastor Chris and I go way back to Los Angeles days. We apprenticed together uh, under the same pastor, Bishop Kenneth C. Ulmer, and it's good to see him and his lovely wife here. Matthew chapter 25, pick me up in verse... 31. This is Jesus, and he gives these sobering words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. So I just want you to see that Jesus is identifying himself with the marginalized. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now let me just stop right here and just say this. Jesus gives us a radically different understanding of what it means to be righteous. Now I grew up in Atlanta. You know, I go way back to when we didn't even have traffic. I didn't even know what traffic was. I hit traffic this morning on the way to church on a Sunday. How you all do it, I have no idea. I grew up in the Bible Belt. I know about cultural Christianity. And for so many of us, righteousness is having like an amazing consecutive quiet time streak 
um, where I sit there in my lazy boy chair with my Bethmore bobblehead doll. Love Bethmore, by the way. And, uh, and we think that's being righteous. That's not what Jesus teaches. He's saying the righteous person, what you did to those in need, you actually did to me. And he calls that righteous. So in the Bible, righteousness has nothing to do with quiet times. Have them. But you can be wicked and have an amazing quiet time. It's very anti-Bible Belt Christianity. Tim Keller actually says it this way. He says, righteousness in the Bible is actually disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others. Now he pivots and he talks about the wicked. If righteousness is disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others, then wickedness is the antithesis. It is advantaging myself to the disadvantage of others. Then he will say to those on his left, he's not talking political, by the way, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? I was hungry. You gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger. You didn't welcome me. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you as you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me, and these will go away, wow, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Pastor Mike. Thanks for this church. It's a, it's a privilege, Lord God, for uh, our church up in um, the Raleigh-Durham area to have played a hand in launching Mike out and planting this church, Image Church. It's a great privilege and honor of mine to come alongside of people like Mike, uh, church planters, and just encourage them. I pray that this church, as she, um, as she is making her way in this section of the vineyard, Lord God, would feel greatly encouraged today, even as I've heard from Pastor Mike just stories of engagement in the community, Lord God, uh, of this church. I, what, what I'm saying today, she is already doing. And so I pray that Image Church would excel still more. How I was just pleased to see the compassion closet right here on the facilities that are giving away clothes to people in need. That's the heartbeat of Matthew chapter 25. So, Lord God, would you not just speak a word to this church, but would you also speak a word to our own hearts, to my own heart, Lord God? I just, at 51 years of age, the gravitational pull downward into material possessions and greed, it is fierce. And unless we catch a biblical vision, not a legalistic one, but a biblical Christ-centered vision, I fear so many people will be operating under the illusion of salvation only to hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. So God, would you both challenge and inspire? My aim today, Lord God, is to just cast out the seed of your word and I pray that it lands on good ground and it takes root. This is not about whether or not we can buy things or where we can shop, that's why we have a Holy Spirit and I'm not him. 
But Father, would you, would you lead a countercultural church called the Image Church to live in defiance of the American way and to say my identity is in not what I possess, but in who possesses me, which is Jesus Christ. So give me great grace and truth in Jesus' name. Amen. On October 27th, 1787, there was a 25-year-old white guy who wrote these words. Again, October 27th, 1787, 25-year-old white guy writes these words in his journal. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. You talk about vision. 25-year-old guy, 1787 says, I'm going to take on slavery. That guy's name was William Wilberforce. If you have not drunk deeply from the life of William Wilberforce, I want to encourage you, drink deeply from the life of William Wilberforce. Um, his story, let's take it four years prior to, is the age of 21 years of age. He's at a party with his dear friend, William Pitt. You historians understand William Pitt would later on become the prime minister of England, but for now, they're a bunch of 21-year-old kids at a party. I don't know if they had too much champagne, but on a whim, these 21-year-old kids look at each other and say, hey, let's run for parliament. And they run for parliament. And Wilberforce, drawing on his vast resources, that joker wins at the age of 21. In fact, he would never lose another parliamentary race again. Four years later, the great hound of heaven, Jesus Christ, tracks him down. The gospel invades his life, and it turns his life upside down to the point where William Wilberforce, now at the age of 25, is like, man, there's just no way I can be a follower of Jesus and give leadership to a nation that is thriving off of the social evil of slavery. So this is what this 25-year-old white dude says in 1790s. I got to quit my job. Because maybe he was under the illusion that if I quit my job and go to seminary, then I can really make a difference because everybody on the varsity side of the kingdom, as we all know, they've gone to seminary and they are in vocational ministry. Nothing could be further from the truth. Thankfully, William Wilberforce had a guy who was discipling him, a guy by the name of John Newton. Yeah, you know that name. John Newton himself dabbled in the slave trade. He commandeered a ship called the Greyhound, and in April, some years before, a storm uh, hit his ship. He almost died. He's really shook to the course. Someone had given him Thomas Akempis' classic book, The Imitation of Christ. He reads this book, John Newton does. That great hound of heaven, Jesus Christ, invades his life. He gets saved. He quits his job as a slave trader, where for years he would sail down to the west coast shores of Africa, beat and bind slaves, pack them under inhumane conditions, sail them through the Middle Passage, sell them into bondage. Bondage. He turns away from that. He becomes a pastor. One day he is overwhelmed by grace. He picks up the pen, dips it in the ink, and writes these words Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, that, but now I see. That's the man, William Wilberforce, before he hands in his resignation, goes to sea in the fall of 1787. And so he says to his mentor, he says, Newton, I just got to tell you, man, Christ is in my life. 
I can't reconcile my day job, giving leadership to a nation that's thriving off of slavery with my newfound faith in Jesus. And then Newton says these words to him verbatim, which would change his life. He says, it is hoped and believed, young Wilberforce, that the Lord has actually raised you up for the good of the nation. In other words, hear me, William, you do not have to quit your job in the marketplace and become a pastor to make a difference. That your vocation is a viable venue to advance the purposes of God. And I just want to come by and just kind of say to you something we believe, the priesthood of all believers, that you can make a difference. In fact, let me just say this. One of my problems with so many Christians is I just love how we do these short-term mission trips, and it's amazing. You get the matching T-shirts, you board the flight, you go way across seas to do over there, which you're not even doing in your cul-de-sac. All of life is our mission field. <laughs> Everywhere we go, where we are, we can make a difference for Christ. So these words actually strengthen Wilberforce. A couple months later, Christmas Eve, 1787, he gives a six-hour address to Parliament. He says, he says, my great aim is the abolition of the trade. All others are secondary. I'm not going to rest until I have affected his cause. And nobody claps. They're quiet, just like you. Do y'all say amen? Do y'all do Y'all are begging for a long sermon if you don't say amen, because I don't know if you're getting it or not, right? So if you want a quick word, you better say something to me. Holler at me. Do something. But anyway, so here he is, six-hour address. Nobody claps. They're like, are you crazy? We make our living off the trade. We pay our mortgages off the trade. So for the next 20 years, William Wilberforce gets some other Christ followers together, and they say, we're taking on slavery. And so they say things like, hey, what if we gave up sugar? Not for keto purposes, but, but most of slavery is in the West Indies. Sugar plantations. What if we stopped eating sugar until slavery is abolished? Finally, 1807, England votes to abolish the trade. They throw a party that night to celebrate the historic vote. Someone comes to William Wilberforce. They clearly vote in the opposite direction. He says, now that you got what you want, what's next? And William says, I'm going to look for something else to abolish. 26 years later, 1833, three days before William Wilberforce dies, England, having already voted to abolish the trade, now votes to outlaw slavery and emancipate the slaves. 32 years later, 1865, rippling across the Atlantic to these United States of America, the 13th Amendment is ratified. A little-known slave up the road here in Nashville, North Carolina, named Peter Loritz, my great-great-grandfather, is emancipated, set free. And here I am, preaching in the Deep South to a primarily white body, all because a 25-year-old white dude couldn't relegate his Christianity to quiet times and worship experiences. And I have no doubt that seeing the life of William Wilberforce through the lens of Matthew 25, that he will be counted among the sheep. This ain't a democratic agenda. 
This ain't a Republican agenda. This is a biblical agenda. Let's call it like it is. Matthew 25 is a tough text. Because here's what Jesus seems to be saying. If life for you is all about fancy cars, big houses, $5 cups of coffee, $200 pairs of jeans, yet another designer purse, and you do nothing for the poor, you go to hell. It's probably the most anti-American passage in the Bible. Hermeneutically speaking, it's a big challenge. Because what Jesus seems to be saying is, if you want to get to heaven, find somebody poor and give to the poor. You'll get into heaven. And I don't know about you, that sounds like work salvation. So let me spend the next few minutes doing for us what Jesus never did. Let me explain what he said. <laughs> See, Jesus just kind of gives the message and he drops the mic. Let me pick up the mic and let me smooth it out. There's a basic hermeneutical law that says you never build and base a doctrine from one passage of Scripture. Instead, you take your findings from that passage and you set it within the broader theological framework of Scripture. If there's one thing we know about studying the Bible, it's this. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible screams, we are not saved by works, but we are saved by grace through faith. This isn't just a New Testament doctrine. It's all the way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which was Paul's favorite go-to verse as he would write various churches in the New Testament. It says this, that Abraham simply believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Immediately, this is the grand doctrine of justification. Justification says that when I accept by faith God's gracious offer, that I am immediately declared righteous. Now I move into sanctification, and all sanctification is, it is the process by in which God is making me to be what he has already declared me to be, which is righteous. What's interesting is Genesis chapter 15, he's declared righteous, but Genesis chapter 17, he enters into the covenant by sacrificing animals so that even under the Old Testament paradigm, faith precedes works. I could take you to Exodus. God says to the children of Israel, okay, time to move out of here. We're, we're going to leave. There's one more plague coming. It's called the death of the firstborn, but you can get out of it because here's what you need to do. I need you to take the blood of a spotless lamb and by faith take the blood of a spotless lamb and put it over the doorposts of your homes. And when the death angel sees the blood of the spotless lamb, he will pass over, pass over your home. Oh, I hear Dr. Robert Smith Jr. talking to me now, and that is every Old Testament picture has a New Testament point. And that New Testament point is the blood of the ultimate spotless lamb, Jesus. All we must do to be saved is to, by faith, apply his blood to the doorpost of our hearts, and we shall be saved. I could take you to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while, while, while we were yet sinners. 
Christ died for us. My favorite word in Romans 5.8 isn't God, isn't demonstrated, isn't loved, it's while. Tim Keller says that the great news of the salvation is that God sees us as is, accepts us as is, saves us as is, yet by his grace never leaves us as is. I can take it to Ephesians chapter 2. Over and over, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. My friend Matt Chandler says it this way, grace simply means you didn't eat your dinner, but you still get dessert. God's unmerited favor. What got you in keeps you in. Grace. You didn't work your way into it. You can't work your way out of it. But salvation is a mystery. As the old folks say, not everybody talking about heaven is going. C.S. Lewis once uh, in a lecture at Oxford University says, you know what? When we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised on two fronts. Number one, we're going to be surprised at who is there that we knew for sure would not be there. And number two, we're going to be surprised at who is not there that we knew for sure would be there. Whereas old folks used to say, not everybody talking about heaven is going. This has its footing, actually, in Matthew chapter 7, where Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the great the great paradox of heaven and hell will, that, will be that heaven will have in it many immoral people, dare I even say former prostitutes, and hell will have many virgins. My morality or lack thereof does not suffice to get me in or to get me out. I am saved by grace through faith. That begs the question, now, how do I know that I'm saved? Can't just be my words. Can't just be my church attendance. How do I know that I'm saved? Jesus says, Matthew 7, you shall recognize them by their fruit. What is fruit? Fruit is a changed and changing lifestyle that cannot be blamed on the normal maturation process of adulthood but can only be blamed on the indwelling working of the Spirit of God in me. Or I'll say it this way, and Pastor Chris knows this. Our pastor, Bishop Ulmer, he said it one Sunday in front of thousands of people, so I don't mind sharing it in front of you. He says, you know, when I first got saved, I used to cuss at the drop of a hat. But now since following Christ, I don't cuss that fast anymore. (laughs) That's kind of theologically accurate. Every true blue follower of Jesus Christ should be able to look through the rearview mirror of their walk with Christ and be able to conclude two things. Number one, I haven't arrived. I have not arrived. You cut me on 85 and I hadn't had my time with Jesus and cup of coffee. I might want to pull up next to you and speak to you in sign language. <laughs> we used to sing a song at our little chocolate church on the south side of Atlanta growing up. Written by the king of gospel music, James Cleveland. Please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. That's good Bible. 
But on the other hand, I should be able to conclude that while I'm not there, I'm not where I once was. He is changing me. Now we're ready to rightly divide our text. As one theologian says, Matthew 25 has nothing to do with the root of salvation. But it has everything to do with the fruit of salvation. Our text is not about how to get into the kingdom. But our text gives us indicator lights that allow us to determine if the kingdom has really gotten into us. An ungenerous Christian is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction in terms. Paul said it this way, speaking of Christ, that though he were rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that we by his poverty must become, will become rich. I'm not talking to you today about tithing. I'm not talking to you about any of that. The heartbeat of the gospel is generosity. We had the worst kind of poverty ever. A spiritual poverty that left us hopeless. That left us with a debt we could never pay. And Christ did not look at us and say, get yours, I got mine. He didn't just give out of his pocket. He gave out of his life. How do I know that I'm saved? I respond to that generosity vertically that I've received by being generous with others. I don't have three points. In fact, I I think I have one. (laughs) How do we get here? How do we get here? This is all throughout the Bible. When God is setting up the economy of the nation of Israel, he says to them in Deuteronomy, he says, listen, do me a favor. When you go to your fields, do not glean to the edges of your field. Jesus says, excuse me, God says, leave margins in your field for the poor to come to glean. Do you know that's God's welfare strategy? And notice how it is in contradistinction to America's welfare strategy. God's welfare strategy is not a system of enablement where he says, give them handouts. It is a system of empowerment. He says, give them the dignity of work. That's how Boaz meets Ruth, by the way. He's just handling his business according to biblical norms, leaves margins in the fields, and meets a fine lady in the process. This is counterintuitive to tell a farmer to not max out his land literally means leave money on the table to spontaneously and generously give to the poor. See, we Christians love to debate on how much margin should it be. He gives no dimensions. The average Christian would rather have a rule than to think.
So I think the New Testament principle of that is Corey and I over the years have fumbled our way along. I think the New Testament principle is we should leave margin in our budgets to spontaneously and generously give to the poor. I'll let you and the Holy Spirit work out what that looks like. But I plead with you today, don't go the typical American route of get the raise, max out the budget, get the raise, max out the budget, get the raise, or overextend yourself with credit cards. One of my favorite things, we're empty nesters now, but one of my favorite things we do every, every year, this time of year, is we'd get our tax statements and our CPA would tell us, would give us this document, this is how much you gave. And we'd huddle our kids together every single year. Because every year our goal is we want to, I have two financial goals every year. I want to save more than the last year and I want to give more than the last year. So we'd gather our kids together every year. And here's the giving statements, and their eyes would get big. And then I'd say to them, what did you miss? Oh, I'm thinking about another song, Pastor Chris, we used to sing. You can't beat God giving no matter how hard you try. In order to get here, we need some help as we round third and head for home. I took classes, not in an official capacity, I don't want to overstate anything, but there was a couple years, um, and I'm quoting him a lot, but my pastor, Bishop Omer, would teach over at Oxford, and I'd go over there to Oxford. He would teach a class at Keeble College. If you know anything about Oxford University, it's uh, made up of all these colleges, about 38 colleges, and my favorite thing about Keeble College wasn't Keeble College, but across the way there was Lincoln College. You historians understand Lincoln College is where John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, went. John Wesley, when he was 19 years old, asked himself a question, how much do I need to live off of for the year? He did some calculations. This is back in the 1700s. He says, 28 pounds. That's all I need to live off of. 28 pounds is enough for me. Anything I get over 28 pounds, I will give away to the poor. First year, he made 30 pounds, lived off the 28, gave the other two away. He says, huh, this is good. I shall do that for the rest of my life. 28 pounds is enough. One year, he made 1,500 pounds through the sale of his, what they called pamphlets back then, but he lived off the 28, gave the other 1,472 away. John Wesley wrestled with a question most American Christians do not even ask. It is the question of enough. Don't go legalistic on me. How much is enough house? How much is enough car? How much are enough purses? How much are enough shoes? How much are enough wallets? Hear me. Don't let the enemy make room for legalism where we think what's enough for me should be enough for you. (laughs) 
But I promise you, when you're flatlining, your last thoughts will not be, should have got the 26-inch rims. <laughs> Nothing's wrong with 26-inch rims. But your last thought would be, I should have done more. I was so encouraged sitting with Pastor Mike last night and just hearing stories about what Image Church is doing. And I just want to tell you, God's going to continue to grow and bless this church. But don't get caught up in the American way of doing things. Be generous. I, I, I want to close with this. You, you, you young preachers, don't, don't copy this. This is not a good way to close a sermon. But I read this story. <laughs> And it just grabbed my heart. It's, it's about a preacher from Philadelphia. His name is Tony, and he goes to Hawaii. But because he's like in so many different time zones, he can't sleep at night. So he gets up and he walks into a diner, and he tells the guy behind the counter he'd love a cup of coffee and a donut. Tony says, he poured me a cup of coffee and wiped his grimy hand on his smudged apron. And as I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open. And to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small place, and they sat on either side of me. Their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place and was just sitting, sitting there about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting beside me say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 39. Her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want? You want me to get you a cake and sing happy birthday? Come on, said the woman next to me. Why do you have to be so mean? I was just telling you, that's all. Why do you have to put me down? I was just telling you it was my birthday. I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party my whole life. Why should I have one now? Tony says, when I heard that, I made a decision. I sat and waited until the women had left. Then I called over the guy behind the counter and I asked him, do they come in here every night? Yeah, he answered. The one right next to me, does she come here every night? Yeah, he said, that's Agnes. Yeah, she comes in here every night. Why do you want to know? Because I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday, I told him. What do you think about us throwing a birthday party for her right here tomorrow night? At 2.30 the next morning, I was back at the diner. I had picked up some crepe paper decorations at the store, had made a sign out of big pieces of cardboard that read, Happy Birthday, Agnes. I decorated the diner from one end to the other. I had that diner looking good. The woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out on the street because by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. It was wall-to-wall -wall prostitutes and me. At 3.30 in the dot... The door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes and her friend. I had everybody ready, and when they came in, we all screamed, Happy Birthday! Never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle a bit. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her as she was led to one of the stools along the counter. We all sang happy birthday to her as we came to the end of our singing, Happy Birthday, dear Agnes, happy birthday to you. Her eyes moistened. Then when the birthday cake with all the candles lit on it was carried out, she lost it and just openly cried. The guy behind the counter mumbled, blow out the can candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. If you don't blow out the candles, I'm going to have to blow out the candles myself. And after an endless few seconds, he did. Then he handed her a knife and told her, cut the cake, Agnes. Yo, Agnes, we all want some cake. 
Agnes looked down at the cake, then without taking her eyes off it, she slowly and softly said, look, Harry, is it all right with you if I, I mean, is it okay if I kind of, what I want to ask you is, is it okay if I keep the cake a little while? I mean, is it all right if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. Take it home if you want. Can I? She asked. Then looking at me, she said, I live just down the street a couple of doors. I want to take the cake home and show it to my mother, okay? I'll be right back, honest. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the Holy Grail, walked slowly toward the door. As we all stood there motionless, she left. When the door closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. Not knowing what else to do, I broke the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? Looking back on it now, it seems more than strange for me to be leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes in a diner at Honolulu at 3.30 in the morning. But it just felt like the right thing to do. I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that her life would be changed and that God would be good to her. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter and said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church you belong to? In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. Harry waited a moment, then he answered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. So I want you to hold everything that I've been saying in tension. Yes, you read 1 Timothy 6. He has created all things for our enjoyment. I don't think God created the crystal blue waters of the Caribbean and said to the Holy Spirit, hope they never see that. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money. So some of you all, you can make money in your sleep. Amen. Some of you all, God's going to give you permission, buy that second house. Amen. But there's another side to this. That he doesn't just bless me for me. That I'm not a cul-de-sac of his blessings. I'm a boulevard. Just want this stuff to flow through. And friends, all of this is rooted in the gospel of Jesus. Money's just money. It's just money. But connected to the gospel, it's a powerful thing. Jesus says, watch out for greed. I'm always perplexed by that. Do you know that's the only sin he said watch out for? Why? Because I think every other sin when we commit it, we know we cross the line right away. But greed is so subtle, I think we don't realize we've crossed the line until we're miles past it. Though he were rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Friends, we don't give to get back. That's not giving, as my dad says. That's investing. We give to get back to give again and again 
and again because that's what God in Christ does for us. Father, we thank you. I pray for Image Church. I thank you for her. Thank you that we do claim her as a daughter church. Thank you for this section of the vineyard where you have planted and placed her. I pray that corporately they will continue to wrestle with how do we live these things out. I pray against the spirit of legalism. I see so many young churches today boasting in the fact that they don't own buildings as if that earns us any favor with you. Maybe, maybe Image Church is not called to buy a building. Maybe she is. But here's what we do know. Renting or owning, she's called to be generous. So I pray for a spirit of generosity. I pray that what's true corporately will also be true personally, Lord God. I pray it over my own life, Lord God. This, this greed thing runs deep. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. Little nudges. Help us to be obedient. <laughs> because I've discovered true joy isn't ultimately found in buying a new putter. Nothing wrong with buying a new putter, but true joy is, is supporting someone on a missions trip. True joy is being to spontaneously rush to someone's need. Jesus, may we embrace this mission out of response to your generosity to us. In Jesus' name.